Hi folks, Wooden Boat Dan here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded several years ago. So some of the phone numbers, email addresses, website, links, and time-sensitive information are no longer valid. Please keep that in mind as you listen. If you'd like to contact me, my email address is woodenboatdan at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hooked on Wooden Boats weekly podcast episode number 71. I am your host, Dan Matson, a.k.a. Wooden Boat Dan. If you can't do it, nobody can, although millions and thousands and hundreds have tried, and some have replicated and duplicated, but it's not an honest, complete refabrication of what Wooden Boat Dan has done. And this is the world's first podcast fully dedicated to celebrating the art, craft, history, tradition, and romance of wooden boats all over the world. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. Great to have you. The number of downloads to the podcast continues to increase, although there was a dip in December. But this month, so far, it looks like we're going to set a new record for number of downloads, so that's pretty sweet. So thanks for tuning in. This is a place where we talk about everything wooden boat. We encourage people to get involved with wooden boats, build one, restore one, Sail one, row one, power one, go to a wooden boat show, learn some traditions and skills that have been passed down through the generations. It's really fun stuff. So if that's what you're looking for, you are in the right place today. Today's featured segment is with Jim Llewellyn of Bainbridge Island, Washington. Jim is a wooden boat enthusiast, does a fair amount of restoration work himself, has some really cool vintage wooden boats that he still uses. So stick around for that interview. I think you're going to like it. This past Friday, I went to Bainbridge Island in uh, Washington State. It's directly west of Seattle across Puget Sound. It's a really cool little island. I had not been there since I did a road bicycle ride called the Chili Hilly about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. It's an annual ride put on by the Cascade Bicycle Club out of Seattle kind of the first official club ride of the season it's in february so it's chilly and hilly there and it's like 30 28 30 miles something like that anyway went over to bambridge last friday and did three interviews had a blast as usual first one was with jim llewellyn which you're going to hear today second one was with roy jackson who built a schooner over a 33 year period Yes, you heard it correctly, 33 years to complete. And also with Jim Mateer. And Jim is a wooden boat builder and restorer in Paulsville, Washington, which is pretty close to Bainbridge. So I met three new folks, had a a blast, took some pictures, did interviews, got to talk shop, learn a little bit more about wooden boats. This is really fun stuff, seriously. I could do that pretty much every day of the week, I think. Although my voice might get a little bit hoarse eventually, but, you know, it's really enjoyable. It's amazing because there's all these people tucked around in the woodwork, no pun intended, that are doing stuff with wooden boats. And it's like they're all over the place. (laughs) And I'm discovering them one at a time. So this is pretty cool. Okay, so this week, I was going to say I did not work on my canoe, but I probably worked on it about a total of 15 minutes What I did actually was clean my shop up, did just a little bit of sanding on it, 
the other thing I've been doing is we have our house for sale and it's in contract now to sell. So I'm getting more serious about paring down what I have in my shop. So when we move to a smaller place, I will have room for everything. And that's taken up some time. But it's all good thing because I've been at my shop for 14 years and I've accumulated a lot of stuff and probably, you know, two thirds of it or half of it I'll probably never use. But, you know, how can you throw out a two by six by 10 that's in pretty good shape? Because I don't know what you might need that for something, right? <laughs> or your old uh, kitchen cabinet doors that are seven inch plywood. Actually, I did use a few of those. So anyway, I'm getting rid of some stuff, which is good. Getting a little more organized. Today's wooden boat hack of the week is hack number 14. If you're new to the show, I try to give a little wooden boat tip or a hack, as I call it, each week. Something to do with building, restoring, maintaining a wooden boat. Uh, this week, the hack is to, uh, when you go to work on your boat, let's say it's a work session that's two hours long, save about 10 or 15 minutes at the end of the session to clean and organize your shop Put all your tools back in place, sweep the floors, uh, clean off your bench, put fresh sandpaper on your sanding blocks, take note of supplies that you may getting maybe getting low on so you can order some of those or purchase at your local store. And just take about 10 or 15 minutes to do that at the end of your session because what that means is next time you go down to the shop, you'll be all ready to go. You won't come into a messy shop wondering what you're supposed to be doing. I'm out of sandpaper, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's just kind of a mental thing to get prepared for your next session like that. I do it some of the time. I don't always do it, but actually last night when I went down to the shop, I decided, you know what, instead of working on my boat, I'm going to spend about 15 minutes and clean things up and organize because it was getting to be a mess. And it's like, I don't like to work in a messy shop. So Anyway, that's a tip. At the end of your session, clean up, get ready for the next session, and also write down the next step in the process that you're going to be doing. So when you come back to the shop, you'll know exactly where to start, and you'll be all ready to go. And purchase supplies if you're getting low on any supplies. So hopefully that is helpful to you. We have one new subscriber to the e-newsletter this week. It's Don Stuckey. Don, welcome to the subscription list. I will be sending out a letter this week, my monthly letter. If you haven't subscribed already, you can go to Hooked on Wooden Boats forward. Uh, let's try that again. Hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe. Give me your first and last name and email address, and you'll receive a monthly newsletter from me electronically, giving an update on what's going on with Hooked on Wooden Boats, some of the fun stuff I'm doing links to videos and other fun stuff. So it's just a good way to connect. And I would appreciate if you would do that. We are now going to move on to the interview with Jim Llewellyn of Bainbridge Island. Let's go ahead and take it away, Jim. Okay, it is January 18th, 2013. I am sitting with Jim Llewellyn on Bainbridge Island. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm sure glad to be here, Dan. Yeah, so we're sitting at Jim's house uh, we met at his boat shop a little bit earlier, and then we came over here because it's about 30 degrees warmer in his house <laughs> for doing the recording, which is great. So uh, I met Jim through Wendy Hinman. Wendy said, you got to talk to Jim because he's got some really cool wooden boats. But Jim, before we talk about that, uh, tell me where you're from and what you did growing up. 
Well, Dan, I grew up in Bellevue, and it was actually a nice place to grow up. <laughs> uh, and the growing up happened between 1947 and 1965, and then I was off to college. Okay. But it was uh, that's where I learned to sail. Was uh, my parents when I was nine years old got a Blanchard Junior knockabout, a twenty foot open cockpit day sailor that they kept on Maidenbower Bay. And oh, really? So I began sailing at age nine, and by the time I was thirteen, my dad said, "Well, you're good enough to take that boat out on your own if you want." And I thought this is cool. You know, you don't have a driver's license, so. If you can get your bicycle down to the Maidenbower Bay, it's freedom. Yeah, really. So, uh, did your parents buy that boat new? Tim? They bought the Blanchard Junior for two hundred and fifty dollars and hauled it out in Everett, and spent another two hundred and fifty dollars fixing it up and finding better sails for it, and somehow got it back in the water in Everett and brought it through the canal and into the lake and oh my goodness and it was it was a fun boat i uh, as i got older i volunteered to do most of the upkeep on the boat as i could i developed those sanding and painting skills and yeah and so as i so the boat eventually sort of became like my boat cuz i my three other brothers had a whole lot less interest in sailing than i did okay so that was a sloop. That was a wooden sloop that was built on Lake Union at the Blanchard Boatyard. Yeah, yeah. Same in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What and, was the length uh, of that boat? That was 20 feet. 20 and feet. It, it had a 500-pound iron keel that looked uh, a lot like the keel that you saw in my Blanchard Senior, only like smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys sailed out on Lake Washington mainly then when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, the big adventure as a family was to uh, get my brother and my dad and mom and one of my friends. I can't believe that we all cramped. took it out through the canal and just started heading north. And we got as far as Saddlebag Island up by Anacortes. And I thought, this is cool. Cruising is fun. <laughs> And I caught a few crabs and came back. And, you know, for my parents, that was quite the adventure. Yeah. And then uh, while I was in college, they got an Alberg 35. And I, I still kept cruising my first two years in college. Took that Blanchard Jr. with another friend from that lived on the island here. And his Blanchard Jr. And we went up through the San Juans and got as far as Victoria. And wow. Bedwell Harbor up in Canada. And I thought... This is cool. We're pressing the limits here, and my yeah. college buddies were kind of impressed we could do that. So did that have a V-berth and a small cabin on it? No. You'd, uh, two guys could sleep in the open cockpit, and but usually I'd row ashore, and we'd camp on the beach. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. It did have a cabin, but it wasn't... No cabin. Oh, no cabin. It's all open cockpit. Oh, was it really? Okay. Okay. You have pictures of that boat? Uh, I'm, I might have a picture. I might have to get some of those. For me. That sounds like a really fun boat. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty fast boat. Well, I never raced it, but it was a lively performer, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. One of my favorite things was to... Uh, <clears throat> I took it out by myself a lot, and uh, my dad said, would tell me, now if you're getting in trouble, just let go of the tiller and it'll instantly head straight up into the wind. So I tr- experimented a few times with that, and, and I'd get out and I'd haul the mainsail all the way in and try to get out in some strong breeze and then 
gradually climb over the side of the boat so I could stand on the keel and still hang on to the tiller. I was really trying to, you know, when you're a teenager, you're always pressing the limits. And I thought, <laughs> you're kidding, you and, I thought and I thought, well, if my dad's right and I actually blow it and fall over or fall off, the boat will just pop up into the wind and I'll swim up and get back on it. Oh, my but, goodness. You know, I was doing this stuff by myself. Really? <laughs> Did you fall off? I didn't fall off doing that. No. no. Oh, my goodness. But, I, you know, I had to challenge myself because I'd, yeah. heard, I'd heard people say that you could do that. Interesting. So did that boat have any any power? It had a Johnson 5 horse. Okay, outboard. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you use that a little bit to get in and out of moorage or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you're out cruising, you're, there's no wind. And did, that, just, did that have the tank on the motor? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that did. Yeah. Okay. And cool. uh, yeah, we just crammed our sleeping bags up under the foredeck and all the food we could get, and just went out island hopping. Fun. So you got hooked as a kid, really sailing on that boat. Is yeah, yeah. And your your dad taught you how to sail, and yeah, he was pretty patient. But I was a quick learner, I think, and yeah, which is why he said at age thirteen, you're good to go. Wow, that's amazing. That's really fun. So then, uh, where'd you go to college, Jim? I went a couple of years at Washington State and then came back over to this side and ended up graduating from the UW. Okay. In uh, business, marketing. Uh huh. Okay. And what'd you do after that? Uh, well, I uh, had been a ski instructor for a long time, and so uh, through that, I uh, had met the owners of the. Snoqualmie Summit Ski Area, and uh, they needed an assistant area manager. So my first year out of college, I was the first assistant ski area manager at Snoqualmie Summit. Wow. And uh, this was in uh, the 1970, 71, around there, and uh, the economy had tanked back then. Uh, Well, the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights. Yeah. That was that that era. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had work for me to do and really needed somebody to help out the manager. But uh, uh, the economy was so bad that by June, they couldn't promise that they could bring me back the next year to work again. So I looked around for another job and uh, can't really remember what I did after that. But in 74, um, a couple of years after that, I went back to Seattle U and got an MBA Mm-hmm. And then tried to begin my real my real adult career, <laughs> which was what, Jim? Well, at that point, uh, I wanted to. I had friends. Um, I wanted to be in the recreation industry. I knew that for sure. So I wanted, and I wanted to put my business degree to work. So in graduate school, I had a friend whose brother owned the North Face, and he said, "Well, they're thinking about opening the first store out of the Bay Area, and you ought to go interview Hap Klopp Was his name? Is his name?" And I went down and interviewed, and sure enough, uh, they were going to open a store. And they said, well, you're in your last quarter or two of business school. Here's what we want you to do. Uh, Analyze where we should locate the store up in Seattle. So I went through a kind of a thorough analysis and picked out a few spots and recommended one of them. And they hired me to be the first manager of the first North Face store up here in Seattle. Where was that? Was that downtown? Yeah, it was at Summit District. They wanted to be 
close to REI, and that was actually up at Summit and Pine. On Capitol Hill. Yeah, near, uh, not too far from Phil Smart Mercedes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that lasted a while, and then I went to work for Frostline Kits, which was, uh, they put out these kits for sewing your own backpacking gear. Really? And, uh, I had already been pretty good at sewing, so they had, like, tents. You could sew your own tent, sew your own fashion ski wear, sew your own down vest, sew a backpack. So they provide the material to do uh, yeah, the instructions? It came in a little box, and the material was all cut out. And with the, that was the secret of Frostline Kits, a very good instruction book, so that even a novice uh, seamster, seamstress, sewer could could put these kits together and down vests were easily the most popular thing and you'd have these little packet numbered packets of down that were just so big some small some big and they'd tell you exactly what when to put these little down packets in the down vest and people were so proud in the this was the late the later 70s that you know you could sew up all your own backpacking gear oh my goodness down socks down shirts oh that's amazing so they transferred me down to Salt Lake to manage their store down there. And about that time, and this was in 78, they'd been growing. I think they were doubling almost every year. It was so popular. Dale, I think it was Dale Johnson that owned it. And in 78, he decided that, uh, you know, he'd risen from his basement to big time. And then he sold the company to Gillette. And Gillette immediately canceled all plans for expanding any stores. And Frostline Kits had promised, when we open our next store in Seattle, you can come back and manage that. I told him before I went down, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Salt Lake. When you open the next store up here, I want to come back. And so there I was, stuck in Salt Lake. Oh, my goodness. And uh, Probably not a whole lot of boating in Salt Lake. No, no. Uh, well, yeah, they don't even use the Salt Lake itself for much boating. Really? It's pretty hard on boats. <clears throat> so I had a friend that I'd known through high school and college who had been here on Bainbridge Island um, building boats, building these star-class racing boats. And we were, we were pretty close, and he'd asked me a few times, well, if you ever want to get out of Salt Lake, uh, I could show you some help building star boats. So the third time he put that question to me, I said, yeah, I'll come. I'll come up and build star boats. Which were those? Were wooden boats? No, these were fiberglass. Fiberglass. Star boats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they they originally were wood, and they were yeah. looked just. There's one on High School Road, sitting in somebody's yard as you go across. Yeah. That's a star boat. Okay. So tell me what a star boat is for our listeners. It's what, what a 23 foot uh, racing sloop with an 800 pound fin keel, hard chines. Uh, it's got a fairly uh, sharp pointy bow that with a fair amount of overhang uh, a large mainsail and a working jib and uh, it was de- designed by Francis Swiseguth in 1911 and originally had a gaff rig but now they're very bendy aluminum fragile masts and very fast they've been an Olympic class for decades I don't know if they're oh, okay. still that's where I heard class. about them it's an Olympic class sailing and, boat uh, I actually crewed on bigger sailboat racing boats with a guy named Bill Buchan, who won the Olympic, uh, the Olympics in his starboat. Uh, this is probably what 15 or 20 years ago now, but 
But it's a pretty famous class, and uh, it was the class where if you were Buddy Melgus or you were Dennis Connors or you were any hotshot sailor, Tom Blackaller, and you wanted to know if you were better than somebody else, you'd race them in starboats because the rules are so tight and the cl- and the boats are so identical that you you can't you can't have a better boat. All you can do is be a better sailor. I see. So it comes down to the sailor. Himself. So you you have to be a good sailor. You have to know your tactics and your strategy, uh, and know your competition. So those are the boats that hotshots determined if. I really am better than you. <laughs> wow. So you moved back here to Bainbridge, was it? Yeah, in 78, or maybe it was early 79, I came back to Bainbridge. I had been renting here since 76, and my roommate still had the little beach cabana we were in, so I just moved right back into where I'd been before. A very cool beach cabana at the end of Tolo Road, and just started working, uh, learning how to build fiberglass, star-class racing boats. Wow. Okay. So how long did you do that for, Jim? Uh, we did that uh, for about 10 boats, which would have been a couple of years, I think. We could build a boat in about three or four months. I'm going to pause this. Okay, we're back. So, Jim, you were building about, you built about 10 star boats with your friend? Um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the orders kind of dried up, and we went, these we did on a, like a subcontracting basis for a, uh, Miller Marine construction here on the island and uh, when those orders dried up we went directly to work I went to work directly for uh, Miller on an hourly basis building other boats that he had contracts for Okay, uh, some of these were bigger racing sloops like for uh, his brother-in-laws were Bill and John Buckin so they had a couple of boats built there uh, that we that we helped out with. And okay, so during this time, did you have your own boat? I had uh, my own Blanchard Senior Knockabout, which I bought the year that I moved to Bainbridge Island in 1976. Okay, and that's a boat we saw in your shop today. Yep, and uh, so I've <clears throat> had that boat and raced it ever since then. So tell me the all the gory details about that boat. Well. Uh, it actually was in reasonably good shape when I bought it, but back then I was, whatever I was, 30 years old. <laughs> I had these dreams of making it both the best-looking Blanchard and the fastest Blanchard. So uh, when it wasn't racing season, I could haul it out on a uh, cradle up on the beach next to my beach cabana there at the end of Tolo Road and and do work on it like to tear out uh, I think the first thing I did was to uh, tear out the cockpit and rebuild that and then uh, <coughs> I thought teak decks were cool so I put on these quarter inch thick teak decks that uh, are just glued down but not with no screws and they don't add too much weight to the boat and uh, in the process of rebuilding the cockpit I replaced or sistered a bunch of the ribs that had these hairline fractures right about the waterline and then I tore the whole inside of the boat out and rebuilt the interior and did a lot of work on the ribs in there and and you were telling me earlier that basically Blanchard took a star boat and rounded the bilges off instead of hard shined uh yeah star boats had hard shines and then uh <clears throat> people wanted what they called a cruising star boat so they 
they made the hull um, fuller and uh, the top sides are a little bit higher instead of being a foot off the water it's about maybe 16 inches off the water and they added a cabin and uh, and a stronger backstay so you didn't need running backstays like on a starboat and uh, there was 97 of them built um, the first ones the first 45 or so were 24 feet long with a boomkin that which is where the the backstay terminated and then after that they just extended the actual boat another two feet and got rid of the boomkin and so all the ones after that were like mine, a full 26 feet long. Yeah, okay. And they had a starboat. Uh, a st- to use the technology, uh, the existing technology, you used a star keel, a star rudder, a star mast, a star boom, and a star sail. So the first Blanchards had a working jib, just like stars, and the first Blanchards had an 800-pound or 900-pound keel. Um and then as they added the fleet started racing in that configuration and they very soon um, decided that they wanted to have a Genoa jib overlapping jib and uh, so then that meant that they had to add a little more to the keel so they went to the foundry and had them add uh, more to the mold the cast iron keel mold and uh then they started racing with a, a Genoa, and then shortly after that, they said, well, spinnakers would be fun. So then we have to add even more to the keel. So it went from about 900 pounds to eventually 1,400 pounds oh my goodness. of molded cast iron. Wow. That's a fin keel. It's a fin keel. Uh, Thunderbirds have fin keels. It, it's a fairly modern keel. When you think this boat was designed in 19... Uh, well, the starboat from which it was drawn was designed in 1911 with a fin keel just like this, which was a radical concept mm-hmm. for then. And uh, they just transferred all that pretty good racing technology to these Blanchard senior knockabouts. So, um, where were we? You wanted to know more about the boat? or the Yeah, and so you were, you were telling me earlier that you raced that boat for many years on Lake Washington and won uh, a lot of yeah. races, and you did some modifications to the keel. Starting in about 78 or 70, yeah, 78, I raced it for uh, something like 13 years. They quit racing as a fleet in 1989, I think it was. And, and as I did these modifications, uh, I tried to make them uh, not only very attractive, but also, if I could, I'd lighten the boat up a little or make it a little stronger. Uh, one year, I took the keel off and, gl- and encased it in fiberglass cloth and epoxy like we used to do for starboats and uh, moved it two and a half inches farther forward because I'd always thought when they added this two feet on the back of the boat, it it made all these Blanchards sit a little off their lines, a little down in the stern. So oh. I thought by moving the keel, there was class rules. So I could have moved it maybe four inches farther forward, but I thought I'll try two and a half inches. And I think it made it float a little more closely to its lines. and All these little nuances that I would do to make it faster and that and a whole lot of sailing and racing, I finally did win a few fleet championships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So, With a very good-looking boat. Yeah. So you still 
uh, sail that boat. We have a racing program here in Port Madison at our little <laughs> local yacht club. And uh, I raced it for a number of years here, but a lot of that participation among the bigger boats has died off so that we haven't had much Thursday night racing for a while. And I'm going to try to get that revived because it is a great venue for racing out in Port Madison. It's a whole lot like racing on Lake Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have any other boats right now, Jim? Uh, well, I have my family's... Uh, <clears throat> Alberg 35 has come down to me, which is what I use for cruising in the summertime, as anybody would, because it's a 35-foot boat. We can go. Yeah. I've had that boat cruising all the way from here to the upper end of Glacier Bay, uh, and every nook and cranny all the way up the B.C. coast and uh, through southeast Alaska. So that's one boat. I have a uh, 1966 uh, Century Resorter inboard. It's uh, 17 feet, all mahogany. And I've done a lot of restoration on that, and we use that actively. Probably water ski more than 100 times a year with that boat. Wow. And And you uh, go out all the time of year. You told me you were out yesterday when it was probably, what, uh, 30, 40 degrees out? Yesterday was January... (coughs) 18th, 17th, and we were out on Liberty Bay. This was an interesting week for me. On Tuesday, we water skied in the morning at about 34 degrees on Liberty Bay. Wednesday, I went up skiing at Crystal Mountain, and Thursday morning, I was back water skiing on Liberty Bay. Really? <laughs> so, my friends that I do both sports with are pretty pretty diehard. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, there's not a whole lot of traffic out there, right? No. You get some pretty flat flat water out there this time of year on the well, right Well, we look for flat water. I, my, the two friends I ski with both have a view of either Port Orchard Narrows or one of them lives on Liberty Bay, and they can call me and say, it looks like glass, let's go water skiing. Cool. So there's that boat that I've done a fair amount of work on the, the Century inboard, and then I have a laser sailboat that I, I sail when I can. It's a, a lot of fun and... It's a little more athletic to sail that boat. Is that a 14-foot boat? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a, a very, sloop. very popular uh, dinghy racing class. Yeah. And then I have an old uh, 26-foot racing shell that I like to row now and then. Okay. And that's, that's the one we saw in your shop, too. It weighs 26 pounds without the metal on it? Yeah. Without the uh, rowing riggers, it weighs 26 pounds, 26 feet long, and 11 inches wide. And... Uh, it takes the oars to stay upright. <laughs> Does it really? Well, without the oars, you're going to tip over. Yeah. Wow, so do you row that out here in the bay somewhere? Uh, I like to keep it over at our little yacht club in Port Madison, and my <clears throat> favorite place on a on a calm fall morning is to row out of Port Madison and around the corner. And if the tide is right, I can row in, behind the, in the lagoon behind... Point Monroe. There's a long sand spit that curves out around and forms this really cool lagoon. And if the tide's right, my favorite thing is to row in this one foot deep water, rowing at about six or seven knots, which is really fast for rowing. And then I look down and I see the shells racing by under me. Oh, wow. And uh, I discovered there are these sand dollars that grow in that lagoon. <coughs> and when sand dollars are living, they're actually black and they grow on edge in the sand with about one-third of the sand dollars sticking in the sand, and they'll grow stacked up like Oreo cookies. 
Um, and it's fun to row over them and look down and, oh, that's what a sand dollar looks like when it's really alive. <laughs> fun. That sounds like a blast. But yeah. So, and 12 inches of water, huh? Yeah. The, the thing draws uh, maybe two inches, and the oars actually go in deeper than the boat does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. So have you built any wooden boats from uh, over the years, Jim? Or mainly done restorations and repairs? My or? wooden boat... Um, stuff has all been just restoring and repairing yeah um when i built boats on my own they i had molds for small rowing and sailing dinghies ranging from eight and a half feet to 19 feet and i i built i think 44 rowing and sailing dinghies but wow. they were all fiberglass mm-hmm. but i did beautiful woodwork inside them <laughs> cool very cool so for somebody that's uh building or restoring a wooden boat what would be a tip that you could share with us that would help them in that process? Don't start. <laughs> okay, how about a second tip, Jim? <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate every dreamer that comes by and says, I'm going to get a wooden boat, and it's going to be a fun project, and I'm going to love doing it. And so... Anybody that, uh, and I never discourage a dreamer, <laughs> and anybody that has those ambitions, uh, if they actually want, wanted my advice, I say, you need a, a place to do it, you need more tools than you ever thought you are going to need, and most guys are okay with getting tools. Yeah, right. And you need a skill set that you will slowly develop, and a patient wife... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, probably four times as much money as you thought. Those are the ingredients for successful dreaming. Cool. Very good. I like that. I think that's very realistic. Uh, otherwise, it sits in your backyard waiting for manana. Yeah, exactly. That's why I build 12-foot canoes, because I can build them in a year, and it doesn't cost me four times. It only costs me twice what I think, instead of four times. So... Very cool. Well, I appreciate your time today, Jim. Uh, anything else you'd like to add here? I'm just really happy that you're doing what you're doing. I uh, have loved everybody that's decided that wooden boats are still both an art form and fun and a great way to uh, be on the water. Very good. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today, Jim. You're sure welcome, Dan, and okay. good luck. All right, thanks. Thanks, Jim, for taking the time to do the interview last Friday. It was really fun to meet you and see your boats. Your Blanchard Senior Knockabout is a really awesome boat. And also the 30-square-meter boat that you've got in your shop that your friend owns. And your 1966 Century Resorter ski boat that you still use 100 times a year is pretty sweet. So thanks again. Best to you, and we'll talk later. Okay, hope you enjoyed the show today. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me, dan at hookedonwoodenboats.com. I invite comments, questions, and suggestions. You can also write on my blog uh, each week on Thursdays when I publish the podcast. I put some show notes up, and at the bottom of that, there's a place where you can leave comments. You can also subscribe to the podcast there through iTunes, Zune, or BlackBerry. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest if you look for Wooden Boat Dan. I do have a voicemail feedback hotline, 
261-2360. If you like the show, you can go to iTunes Store and leave a five-star review for the podcast. I would really appreciate it. And don't forget, on my homepage, if you click on the index menu at the top, that'll take you to a list of all the podcasts that I've done, all 70. It'll tell you who's in the podcast and what it's about. And that way you can scroll through and listen to the ones you'd like to hear by just clicking on the episode number to the left. If you'd like to support the show, go to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash Amazon and make any purchase from Amazon and I get paid a little bit. Also, you can go to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash JD. That takes you to Jamestown Distributors which is a vendor for boat building supplies and marine supplies. Great prices and selection. I shop there myself. If you make a purchase after clicking through my link, I get paid a little bit there. Well, I hope you have a great week. If you don't own, rent, or able to borrow a wooden boat, it's high time you get out and buy one or build one. If you're going to build, I recommend you start small just to get one under your belt. 12-foot canoe like I'm building is a good choice. But there's lots of lots of ways to go. But just get in the game and have some fun with it. Go to a wooden boat festival near where you live. If there's not one near where you live, fly to Port Townsend, Washington, this coming September. The weekend after Labor Day, I will be there. And I'd be glad to meet you and hook up and have some coffee and talk shop. So have a great week, folks. Keep the bright side up and the barnacled side down wooden boat, Dan, over and out. We'll talk again soon. God bless. <laughs>